0: Hello Man fans, Ollie Man here, the world has changed, but we're still here.
2: Here's what's coming up. I mean, you get all sorts, you get old schools, old people's homes, ex-mental asylums, old cinemas, like crazy, the craziest kind of places.
0: Songwriter Blaine Harrison on Living Where Nobody Else Is, resurrecting rock and roll landmarks and taking inspiration from the protests, marching past his door. Plus
1: giving away things like giant plush willies and sex toys and vibrators.
0: Alex Fox lends a helping hand, and Ollie Peart returns to the virtual campfire. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, I want to say, uh, I hope you're all right. I hope you and all your loved ones are doing okay. Uh, And if you work for the NHS, or you're a caregiver, or a support worker, teacher, supermarket, shelf stacker, whatever thank you. I really feel that uh, our contribution to the world is much less important than what you're doing. Nonetheless, I hope you will find much to enjoy in our offering today. Our middle feature is about living in cities, attending gigs, and the power of crowds, (laughs) which all feels rather old-fashioned now, even though we only recorded it three weeks ago. Um, But it is a clinically safe way to explore those topics, satisfyingly so, I hope. Um, And at least it isn't As heavy a subject matter as we sometimes bring you, deliberately so. In fact, we've decided uh, next month as well, we're going to do something relatively lighthearted. I hope you'll be pleased to know we're going to be bringing back How to Be a Dad. Uh, So it'll be our annual conversation between me and Tom Price and Stuart Goldsmith, comparing notes on bringing up our now four year old sons. Uh, We were going to wait until September to do it this year because that's when the kids start school. Um, But you know, the lockdown happened, I thought you could do with some cheering up. And there's a lot of parenting to talk about right now. And actually, I want your involvement too, because I know a lot of dads listening to this will also be in with the kids for a protracted period, obviously. But some of you, for the first time, if you usually go out to work on weekdays, how are you finding that? We're going to open up our dad discussion next month to you guys as well. So if you have a question of fatherhood that you would like me and Tom and Stu to answer in the next episode... Perhaps you just want to ask about what TV programs we recommend, or games, or perhaps you are interested in our survival tips for your relationships. <laughs> Do drop us a question. It'd be really good to hear from you. Just visit modernmanwith 2 nscouk and click Feedback. Uh, Mums too, as well. Please feel free to write in. Uh, If you haven't heard our How To Be A Dad episodes before and you want to catch up, um, head to modernman.co.uk slash dads uh, and all five episodes from the last five years are there. Uh, Some other light-hearted stuff to distract your ears with. uh, What can we offer? Well, uh, over on BBC Sounds, Alex has her podcast, Unexpected Fluids. There's 50 episodes of that now. Uh, That's a sort of sex comedy podcast, basically. Um, And producer Matt also has a show, Uh, for the BBC, uh, for Radio 2. It's called Bitch, 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 which is a podcast presented by Matt Lucas, uh, exploring the unglamorous truth of various seemingly glamorous jobs, like being an actor or working as cabin crew. Uh, So he urges me to tell you to check that out now. Uh, And of course, it would be remiss of me not to say wouldn't it, that there are now 384 episodes of Answer Me This available? Uh, if you haven't heard that before, I know most of you come to the Mon Man from Answer Me This, but some of you probably haven't, but I don't talk about it much. Probably don't even realise I do another show. I've been co-hosting a comedy Q&A podcast since 2007 with Helen Zaltzman of The Allusionist, uh, and you can find it at answermethispodcast.com. There's a new episode out this week, so there's plenty there, hopefully to cheer you up and distract your mind from what is going on. Uh, I also actually put a post up on Facebook, asking asking you what podcast you'd recommend to your fellow Man fans. Uh, Mark Klingman suggests you're wrong about... He says they revisit the famous news events of the 80s and 90s and how they were misreported, and it's very well done. That sounds excellent. Uh, Charlene Barber recommends How Did We Get Here? Claudia Winkleman and Tanya Byron, talking about lots of issues brought up by different problematic relationships. She says they end in positive ways, so it always feels cathartic to hear the conversations, and I feel a bit more together for having listened to them. Uh, And Deirdre Johnson suggests Everything Is Alive, uh, which is a Radiotopia show. She says the host interviews inanimate objects. It's hilarious, but also so touching in places. <laughs> Sounds wacky and intriguing. I hadn't heard of or actually heard any of those shows, so I will be checking them out as well. And it was great, I had about 55 responses to that Facebook post, so uh, if you want even more to fill your ears with, scan the list, uh, see what people are recommending, or if you'd like to recommend something, facebook.com slash Mann. Uh, right, on with the show. In this month's edition, you will learn what event-based dosing is, uh, you'll learn what 286 million people have been doing this week, and you'll learn what Greta Thunberg gets up to on a birthday. Let's go. OK, time for the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with the man who says social distancing, what's that? I've just been in my shed for a fortnight. It's Ollie Pitt.
4: Because it is a shithole in there.
0: What's the item that's irking you?
4: I've got two deck chairs in there that I need to get out. And they're really irritating because they're like the old-fashioned sort of beachside deck chairs, right? I don't know who invented them. Charming,
0: not irritating. I've got some of those.
4: Normally, they're stored... On a beach side, and then some bloke hands them out at some exorbitant price. But right now, they're clogging up my shed, and I don't know where to put them.
0: I have the exact same issue in my gaff, and the answer is we are buying a shed to put the deck chairs in. (laughs) So you can get.
4: (laughs) You're buying You're buying a shed just for your deck chairs.
0: If only I had that wealth. It's only 150 quid. I mean, if you scrapped your old deck chairs and bought a new deck chair, that would be the same price as the shed. And we have the space, the way our garden's laid out, there's a bit of wasted space, which is just where the cat craps. Which, to be honest, I'd quite like to persuade her to go out into the field. So there we can put a bike store. So that's what it is. It's not actually a shed. It's a bike store, but it will fit two of those deck chairs on their side, plus my kid's bike. That's the idea. Okay,
4: fair enough. I'm not going to go and invest in a new shed, though. I can't afford that.
0: The problem is, do we buy it now? Because is the company still going to exist to be able to deliver it? That's the problem. I don't know whether to place the online order or not. We'll just do it. Why not? Suddenly I'm Mr. Moneybags, am I? I can afford to spend 150 quid on a a shed that might never come. (laughs)
4: Well, look at you. Of course you are with all your expensive cath kits and rugs behind your back. I should say the reason Ollie
0: can see what's behind my back but is not actually in front of me uh, is because, of course, we're doing our bit here at The Modern Man to uh, protect the NHS and save lives. We are recording remotely for the first time. Yes. Uh, So, Ollie, I can see you. We're doing a Hangouts video call at the moment. We are. You look like you're in a dark cave of sadness.
4: I've rekindled my childhood here. Do you ever, did you ever um, like make uh, dens out of duvets and stuff when you were a kid? I did. So I've got two dining room chairs on the bed and then I've draped a duvet over the top and I'm just surrounded in pillows. But I am hideously uncomfortable. My back feels like it's about to give way. but it sounds great.
0: The reason we're sounding so deep and warm and resonant, though, is thanks to the lovely people at Blue Microphones who have provided the acoustic technology for this to happen. So they've kindly sent each of us a Yeti X USB mic, which is sort of their mid-range model in the three new mics that they've just released. So that's what we're using now. It looks like a kind of 1950s studio mic, doesn't it? If you imagine the kind of microphone that uh, Zoe Ball would pose with on the front of the Radio Times when she's just got a new breakfast show, that's the mic, but it plugs straight into your computer.
4: Yeah, I feel like I should have slick back hair, fifties style, and then and then talk talk like a fifties man. What do fifties people talk like?
0: I mean, that's just so weird. <laughs> There's no decade of speech.
4: <laughs> people
0: had speech impediments in every decade, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is that you're trying to do.
4: The thing I noticed about that, you know, like when you get you you buy stuff, it's like plug and play, especially USB. It's not going Well, it never
0: is actually plug and play, no, it's because never. You, you you take it out of the packet, and then you actually have to download a special program, and then it's like, oh, it's not compatible across both your devices. But I know what you're going to say, but this is, right? Genuinely, you took it out of the box and it worked.
4: And also, at the moment, all of radio is basically running <laughs> off microphones like this, because they can't go into their studios, so they're having to plug these in. It sounds very good.
0: Yeah, and there's a range of different prices for this kind of thing, for a USB mic, and they can run into hundreds of pounds. This is like absolutely, I think, the area you want to be spending if you can afford it. They're hundred and fifty nine ninety nine. So, I mean, if you're buying the ones that are 30 quid, they're not going to be good enough. And actually, if you're listening to this and you're just doing a lot of video conferences for work at the moment as well. So, I mean, you have absolutely no intention of releasing your own media to the world, but you're just doing a lot of video conferencing because that's the world we're in at the moment. The other good thing about this, you can plug your headphones into it. So the thing that you're talking out of is also the thing you can listen to the call through. So uh, you might feel a bit weird sitting with a semi-pro mic in front of your face when you're just talking to uh, Brenda from accounts or whatever. But actually, it's really clear, isn't it? You don't get that thing in a phone conversation on the internet with these of someone saying, what's that? Lean in a bit. It's all very good, but where can I get one, Ollie? <laughs> just as well you asked, Mr. Pitt. Uh, there's more info at bluedesigns.com. Right, should be zeitgeist. Well, first I think we should address the fact that you're not dressed as a woman. Again.
4: Well, you can only see my top half, but yeah, I'm not.
0: <laughs> that would be an incredible trend to explore, wouldn't
4: it? <laughs> yeah. No. No, I'm not I'm not wearing anything on my bottom half as much. Well. Just from the bottom half
0: <laughs> during video conferences. So we'd planned a whole thing at the Vauxhall Tavern. You were gonna you were gonna come out, not in a Phillips Gofield way, but in a pink way, and you were gonna take to the stage and you were gonna be your ultimate drag queen. Uh, and then of course we couldn't because we went on lockdown. So um apologies to uh Matt Smith who is the listener who wrote in who may or may not be the Dr Who Matt Smith. It looks like your drag challenge is the one that <laughs> the one that slipped away.
4: <laughs> yeah, but the thing the thing with it, you know, constantly moving backwards is that it's just going to get bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger bigger until i'm performing at the international drag festival in los angeles (laughs) in front of five thousand people or something ridiculous and i know it's gonna happen i know because you won't let me get away with it you'll just be like oh you didn't do it so you've got to do this now that's what you're like
0: okay yeah i'm happy to run with that i mean i was literally just about to put it on the back burner and forget about it but fine (laughs) let's keep it i mean as soon as we're allowed out the house we'll do the drag thing But what you can test out for us, Ollie, whilst we're all at home for the next few months, uh, are the trends that we can all do at home. So what have you been trying out?
4: Well, let's start with some apps, shall we? Uh, So Zoom... Everybody's heard of this, just appeared on my radar out of the middle of nowhere all of a sudden. But the one that's really interesting, which is making a bit of a comeback as a result of us all being locked indoors, and that's HQ Trivia. No. Yeah, we spoke about it in the podcast a while ago. Yeah,
0: when it launched.
4: Yeah, it launched back in 2017, and I used it right back at the beginning. It's basically a, a quizzing app basically, where it's got a live host. So there's somebody in a studio in America, and then you answer the questions through this app, which have been developed, and you can win money.
0: And then they went bust because they gave away too much money. Well, they gave, they, <laughs> they gave away
4: loads of money, yeah, and they went bust. And only last month, so uh, in February 2020, their boss was like, right, we've lost all of our money, the investors are pulling out, It's uh, it's game over. And they did a last HQ trivia. They did the whole thing pissed, right? Uh, which was quite funny but now they've relaunched because we're all locked inside we want to do a bit of quizzing and they're like oh we can do this again so it's back up and running
0: it is quite nice with all the doom and gloom about to focus on some good news stories for some entrepreneurs who have created products that possibly weren't that popular and then suddenly this is their moment
4: I mean yeah I'm not that sympathetic because I seem to remember the guys that set it up were multi-millionaires anyway that have made their money off a previous app so yeah whatever
0: I didn't mean that specifically, I just mean generally, as a trend. It's quite nice to spot the people that for years... I mean, actually, in a way, like the doomsday preppers that have been laughed at for years, Like they're laughing now, aren't they, with their cabins full of Pringles?
4: And another thing that has come back from the dead that I decided to give a try, and I've never tried it, even though it's been around for, I'm going to say decades, but I think it's just over a decade, maybe, is Second Life. Not only does it still exist, right, so Second Life is an online virtual life where you can do whatever you want.
0: I mean, it's from the era of, like, GeoCities and MySpace, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was like the first virtual world that you could walk around, except you couldn't really. It was just on a PC.
4: Exactly, yeah. And it was really clunky as fuck. It didn't really... (laughs) Yeah, it was mad.
0: I don't think that was their slogan.
4: (laughs) Second life, clunky as fuck. People figured out how uh, how to make money on there because it's got its own virtual currency, And you can buy and sell that for real currency, right? So some of the stories I seem to remember were like the first Second Life millionaire who was like building houses or whatever and selling them in in this... second life platform i didn't even know it still existed right i thought the whole thing had just completely died how do you get on it you have to sign up and all that kind of stuff and then you download an an app which gives you access to second life i think it's called like the second life window or something and then you can just access it from in there and i just couldn't believe how old and primitive it is it's like playing a platform game from 1998. I mean, it's just so bad.
0: But I wonder if the cause of it all is not just that people want to escape into a virtual world because they've got lots of time on their hands and because obviously a lot of the stuff they're watching on the telly is pretty depressing. I wonder if also people actually want to go back to something nostalgic. Because I'm thinking about this because one of the things I bought this week. I haven't actually played it yet because I've had a migraine, (laughs) but I'm really looking forward to plugging it in tonight, is I've bought the the Sega uh, Mega Drive mini system thing that they re-released last year. So it was like 50 quid, and it's got 40 Mega Drive games on it. Sonic the Hedgehog, Mickey Mouse's Castle, Shinobi 3, Street Fighter 2. It's because I don't play video games, and I wouldn't want a PlayStation Now. But for 50 quid, I, I see that and I think, I remember all those games being £30 each back in the day. So to me, that's terrific value. <laughs> it's, it's a nostalgic feeling.
4: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, but the fascinating thing I found about Second Life is, yeah, that's fine. Maybe people are going back. But there's a large chunk of us that had all obviously thought it had completely died and weren't sure it existed. Last year, bearing in mind you can still make money on the platform, mm. collectively, the users earn, on there earned $60 million. Selling what? Yeah, exactly. Selling what? I don't know. And I didn't even know there were that many people on the platform. So it's still alive and well. Um, And even if there are people going back there for sort of nostalgic reasons, they probably get booted out by the hardcore fans.
0: And could this be the moment, finally, that you might be proven right on VR? I mean, I would say for the last three years of the show, I have been successfully proven right on this time after time. People don't want it. It's too expensive. They look like a twat. But could this be the moment... That people get VR.
3: Well,
4: look, I uh, when I heard we were going into lockdown, I went straight onto um, eBay and I bought a second-hand Oculus Go, which is the one I tested uh, previously.
0: How much are they going for now?
4: I got it for a hundred quid. It was a reconditioned one, but I was like, you know, like everybody going through a bit of panic, and I thought, I just want to get, I just want to get out and go, just be able to sort of imagine i'm outside um yeah. and it's actually been brilliant you know i'm a big advocate for it i think it's great and there has been a bit of a revival in there so i'm not sure if you remember but i was testing the AltSpace vr which was a um a social media app so it was basically think of facebook but in virtual reality well
0: sort of almost house party but with avatars right yeah you go up to people you vaguely know and you can sort of touch them
4: you don't you don't even get you don't go up to people you vaguely know you go up to complete strangers and you can talk to them and i did that i went up to a guy called henry and i just went are you in here cuz you're self isolating and he was like yeah i am i do come here quite a lot at the moment i was like oh how how much are you come he's like every day for about 8 to 10 hours a day Oh, my God.
0: That's quite a lot of time.
4: That is a lot of time to spend next to a virtual campfire. It's
0: funny, though, Ollie, because I should say for the record that if you suddenly now, you know, the government clicked its fingers and you had the ability to go wherever you wanted tonight, it would not be to a bar where you'd approach a strange man and ask him what he was doing there. You're not that person. So it's strange, isn't it, that it's still fulfilling a different need in you than just simply a social thing that's been repressed.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's 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 less of the social thing. It's more of uh, imagining that I'm sitting in a Swiss chalet watching Netflix whilst my other half has a Zoom meeting. But there are people that are a bit more innovative than me uh, who are using it for useful stuff. So uh, there was an educators' conference there because it had to be cancelled because no one could go. And they had 2,000 people attend it in virtual reality. And I think, you know, looking at trends, looking ahead, this year... Facebook are launching what they're calling Facebook Horizon, literally Facebook in virtual reality. You know, you could go in, watch videos together, play games together. So all of these things that we've just spoken about, video conferencing, playing games, watching films, all of that is just together in one place.
0: And I've got a mate actually who lives in Saudi Arabia of all places. And in the evenings, and this is before the lockdown... Uh, Saudi Arabia is a fairly restrictive place socially. Um, so what he tends to do is he sits in his flat on a virtual reality headset and he uses Google Maps and he goes on a walk of New York.
4: You know, if you can't get to these places and you want to see what they're like, then it is, it's is—it's a good tool for that. And its I think the thing with it, it's only going to get better. And I'm still advocating it, Ollie. It will become a thing. And you're going to say, bullshit, it won't happen this year. And it will. 2020 is its year.
0: Okay then, Nostradamus. What other trends do you think are going to see uh, a second life, as it were, as a result of all of this? Well,
4: there is some fun stuff going around on social media. Alex Horn, off of Taskmaster, is doing a housemaster thing, where it's basically Taskmaster, but you do it in your house anecdotally right a few of my mates are just doing live quizzes on like facebook and instagram themselves because they've got nothing else to do
0: yeah i did that with my wife's horseball mates actually we all sat round and there were six couples of us and we did a pub quiz and it was on messenger we didn't use a fancy app to do it we wrote down our answers with pen and paper no one's going to write an article in the guardian about it but it happened (laughs) So, so that must be happening quite a lot that kind of stuff people making their own entertainment
4: Yeah, absolutely. I've been a part of a couple already. Uh, uh, As well, right, Twitch, the streaming platform, they did what they called the uh, Twitch Festival, which was basically a broadcast from 9am till 9pm with loads of famous musicians like Ellie Goulding and all that kind of lot, but they were sort of... In their own homes broadcasting from their homes, and they had like live gaming going on between that, so <laughs> they'd be like right now we're going to go over and join the last ten minutes of France versus Belgium and then it would just be two a bunch of blokes playing um playing FIFA when i I went in to tune into it about halfway through and by the time I got there, already two hundred and eighty six million people had seen it.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it, that people still want some kind of live experience. Like, they can't go out to the pubs, they can't go to the theatre, you know, they can't walk around the town square, can't go to the cinema. So they're, they're watching live stuff that's basically inconsequential, badly thought through, badly produced, badly lit, you know, of no consequence apart from this moment in history, rather than, for example, reading a book. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, if you if you actually just wanted to engage in some quality entertainment, you've got hours on your on your hands... There are books, there's hundreds of years worth of books, and yet people want to feel that they're doing something at the same time as everyone else. It's a real human need.
4: It, it is, but you're, the, the isolation has been forced on you. When you read a book, that is you selectively saying, I want time on my own. Now that's forced on you. You have no choice. You have to do it. And it's quite nice to just know that there are other people out there do, doing things and they're still there, because you step outside on your like designated hour of exercise or whatever and there's no one about but that's the thing you know we're craving it now because we're all locked inside it would be interesting to see how many of these things stick around when all of this goes there will still be an appetite for it who knows
0: Okay, if you've got a trend that you'd like Ollie to test from his own home uh, we are very much opening up the inbox again because a lot of the ideas that we had for this year <laughs> would be a major risk to his health <laughs> or just frankly seem incredibly trite at this point. Uh, so if you have a, a suggestion of a challenge for Ollie Pitt, uh, go to our website, monmanwithtwoends.co.uk, and click the feedback form uh, and fill out your suggestion there. But luckily, Ollie, we already have a challenge in our inbox that fits the bill. It's from Scott and Jen in York, and they say. The government says we can only go to the shops to buy essential food items, but what about luxury products? We can't get onto a cardo anymore, and at some point we're going to start missing our scented candles and five types of pate.
4: Who are these people?
0: <laughs> Ollie's been foraging for seaweed in the past, so we'd like to challenge him to make some luxury products at home using materials he can buy cheaply online or source free from his local area whilst out exercising. What?
4: Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, I'll do it. Just
0: I wasn't expecting this reaction. I mean, basically, I've just asked you to make some soap. I mean, we previously asked you to travel the world.
4: <laughs> soap isn't a luxury item, isn't it? And actually, luxury items at the moment have changed. I would argue that toilet paper is a luxury item at the moment because I can't find any anywhere. Gonna me, you know, I'm going to make my own papyrus in the back garden to wipe my ass with. <laughs>
0: I'll tell you why my brain jumped to soap. It's because actually a luxury item for me would be bath bombs.
4: They are just the worst luxury item ever invented, though why
0: why would you say such a thing
4: you run your bath right and then your hands inevitably get wet and then you go and pick up the bath bomb and then it sort of sticks to your hands because it starts fizzing away when you don't want it to then you chuck it in then it leaves bits in your bath and then you sit down and then you get all like gritty bits up your genitals
0: i mean for a start you put the bath bomb in first before you fill the bath so none of those issues come into play it's like a barocca you don't need to drop it into a full bath there is a satisfaction in watching it fizz i feel you've deviated me from my point my point is (laughs) that i reckon i could probably make a bath bomb using i don't know baby oil and bits of soap and salt and things like that but i don't i go to lush and i spend four pounds on a bath bomb and actually that is really expensive and lush is shut so i would like you to make me a bath bomb But you're obviously not going to do that. So what would you like to make this a luxury product?
4: Oh, chocolates. Really nice chocolates.
0: Well, I like what Scott and Jen say about um, foraging. Because you live in a pretty part of the country, probably within an hour's walk of your house, you could find, if you knew what you were looking for, mushrooms that you could eat. I mean, it's springtime, isn't it? It's probably flowers you can boil up, stuff like that.
4: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I live, you know, near a town centre as well. There's quite a few bins I could probably find some stuff in. Um, look, they've
0: said scented candles and pate, so you could make that for Jen and Scott and send it to them. That You know, that would be a real treat.
4: Yeah, but both of those products, as far as I know, use animals in them, so I probably won't.
0: You can make a mushroom pate, by which I mean one can make a mushroom pate. We're going to find out whether you can.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can try. I'll try.
0: Well, we'll uh, all wait with bated breath to see what you produce. See you next month, Ollie. Bye-bye.
4: Bye. (laughs) Bye. Uh,
0: Coming up next, man fans, we will explore the power of protest amongst other things. Uh, But first, we have our record of the month. It's by South London's Leanne Le Havas. It's called Bittersweet. And if you love it, get ready for the album, which drops 5th of June. Please stop
3: asking.
0: Now, it is always a pleasure to recommend to you the services of our sponsors, Beer52.com. But really, in these times, I mean, I'm not going to call them an essential service, but seriously, a box of delicious craft beers arriving at your door. Uh, It happened to me today. It put a smile on my face. Kind of what I need right now. Uh, If you would like to try out their service and get 10 completely free beers and a snack and a magazine, delivered to your door, then uh, visit our new URL for 2020, beer52.com slash modern. That's the word beer, the number five, the number two dot com slash modern. It's a free trial, so it becomes a subscription if you don't cancel, but... I mean, I would recommend staying as a member. It is quite flexible. You can choose whether you want stouts or light beers, for example. You can pause your membership at any point, and the beers are really great. And you will be supporting a lovely British business as well, based in Edinburgh. Beer52.com/slash modern. And thanks again to them. And enjoy your free beer. Uh, right. Time to meet Blaine, uh, who's someone who I actually did meet (laughs) face-to-face. That was possible a few weeks ago. Um, But the experience is appropriately retro in this case because the conversation you're about to hear is about things that can only happen when crowds are allowed to gather communally. Uh, I met Blaine in Clerkenwell in London. Um, There was still a lot of hustle and bustle on the streets outside back then, and he was tucked away in the basement of a building that seemed very anonymous looking from the outside, just a locked iron gate but the property actually once you got inside had some very historic ornate details and what i couldn't have imagined was that anyone
2: could be living there we are in what is essentially an old victorian tram shed um, at one time there was trams that went up and down the grazing road there's not much from the outside that makes this look like a residential property but it is yeah. I mean, it's residential in the loosest possible way, I'd say. I mean, so I'm a property guardian, which means that we live in buildings which are sometimes in the process of being redeveloped or are going to be knocked flat. In the case of this building, there's been a planning permission that's been online for the last four or five years. And I believe the building's going to be partly restored to its sort of original splendor and partly turned into luxury flats, which is... You know, which is a very common story in central London, obviously. So the deal is you get to live in an
0: incredible location that you might not otherwise be able to afford. You get lots yeah. of space. Yeah. But at any moment
2: theoretically you could get chucked out. Yeah, you can get a month's notice. And what's the rent fixed at? It depends on how big a space you choose or you get given. In the case of this building, some people are paying like about four hundred a month and then some people are paying up. To about 800 900 a month okay so there are people actually living in flats on this street who are probably
0: paying a similar amount yeah. what's the advantage that you get this very special building I mean, you should describe a bit what this building's is like.
2: yeah well so perhaps it's worth talking about the disadvantages first which <laughs> are like kind of they stare you in the face when you come into a property guardianship building which is you know communal bathrooms communal kitchens you know, a lot of them have been kind of fixed up in a rush to, to have tenants move in. Yeah. So when you say communal bathrooms, they might have formerly been an office bathroom. Exactly. Or a bathroom for a butcher or something. Yeah. I mean, you get all sorts. You get old schools, old people's homes, ex-mental asylums, old cinemas, like crazy, the craziest kind of places. A friend of mine lived in a communications tower right on Old Street roundabout and he had he had the top floor and it was just like, a, you know, money couldn't buy that view. It was yeah. just insane. And he had it for three years and then he was given a month's notice and had to move his whole life. That happens fairly often. But we we were quite fortunate in this case because we moved in shortly after Brexit. And obviously, when the economy took a bit of a dive, people stopped spending as much money. You know, the investors sort of dropped out of that top tier in central London. Right. So we've sort of been saved by Brexit. Because it's got a spectacular kind of...
0: Atrium, I guess,
2: this old tram
0: shed when you walk in and you can totally imagine, yes, a speculator walking in and sort of thinking, ah, this
2: would be a fabulous branch of Byron. Right, <laughs> right, 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 exactly, which it probably will be, you know, <laughs> fast forward five years. So I'm a musician, I'm a songwriter and something that I'm always looking for in a space having lived in London for ten years is somewhere that I can just make my own. I can you need to soundproof places, you need to spend some money on that and make an environment feel like a home where you can make your art, you know? And I think being a property guardian, you've got free reign to, to do whatever you want. Oftentimes the building's going to be demolished when you leave. So And that you haven't just built yourself somewhere to live here. We're we're sitting
0: in a recording studio that if you'd blindfolded me and put me here, which for the record I should say you definitely haven't. Um <laughs> I would think was an actual, you know, professional recording studio. You've got uh, audio proof walls, sort of carpet fabric. You've got nice lighting. You've got a pretty f- full on
2: mixing board. The familiar sort of basement smell. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of recording studios. So that's in a way like carrying on the history of the building. At some point in the last, I guess like 20, 30 years, the building was repurposed as studios. So before it became Property Guardian building it was studios so there was a couple of independent newspapers that were based upstairs there was an upholsterers that actually look after all the thrones for all the palaces um, which is now where i live so that's my apartment <laughs> did they save a throne for you no there was no thrones left sadly that is a shame but then the basement which is where we are now is actually a bit of a rabbit warren of all these different spaces the space that we're in was actually hidden behind this metal door and they didn't have a lock when we when we were shown the building. They didn't have a key to the lock. And so we said, well, if we pay for a locksmith to come and hacksaw off this lock, could we potentially have that space? And they said, yeah, I mean, God knows what's behind there. And we got this guy in, he, he, he opened the door and he came in and it was just, I mean, as you see it, all this was here. So we just had all our gear in storage and we just sort of plonked it in and my band started making an album. Oh, right, oh hold on. When you week, say
0: all this was here, not the carpet on the walls. Yeah, everything. There was a recording studio here before. They, these
2: these were all soundproofed recording studios. For what? Making Thrones? <laughs> How did that happen? All no, trans? so the different units had different businesses occupying them. And the basement was let out to different recording artists, producers. That's mad. What are the chances of that? So this studio actually belonged to a band called Death in Vegas, who had a quite a famous record called the Contino Sessions, which was done in this room. And we didn't know this, me and my band didn't know this when we made our album, but the vocal booth just behind us is where Iggy Pop did all his vocals for that album and Liam Gallagher. So these walls have seen, actually, that's amazing. The other day I bumped into um Bobby Gillespie, who's the singer in Primal Scream. We were having a little bit of a catch up and he said, you know, what's, what's your band? What's Mr. Jets up to? And I said, well, uh, we've recently been making an album in our own studio. And he said, oh, what are you? where is it? I said, well, it's this place called The Brainyard. He said, fucking hell, The Brainyard. He <laughs> said, I used to hang out there in the 90s. He said, those walls have seen some things. I don't know what they've seen. Yeah. We're like, the ghosts, I feel like there's ghosts that have sort of appeared in the time that we've been here on the recordings and things. You know, the Property Guardian thing isn't that new. For the other companies, some of the older companies, it's marketed as almost like human guard dogs for landlords you know so like we'll fill your building with people to keep squatters and heroin addicts out and that was always the that was the way it was marketed to people whereas I think the difference now is that it's become so difficult to obviously buy property in London and and to rent at affordable rates that a lot of people are uh, you know are seeking new ways of living in the city and so actually it's it's From a marketing perspective it's targeted more at people looking for somewhere interesting to live. I'll tell you what actually inspired it was I read Paddy Smith's book Kids. There was a point in the 70s where Paddy Smith and Robert Mapplethorpe lived in this abandoned building on the Bowery in New York and they just made all their art together and they were like each other's muses and it was just like disgustingly romantic and I thought I wish that New York still existed. I wish that London still existed. But, <laughs> but actually, Clark and well will do. <laughs> but 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 you know, becoming a property guardian, it's it actually it does. Like you can find your own London, I think. That's one of the most amazing things about the city. So before I became a property guardian. I was living in Hackney and I was looking for a change. I'd been there 10 years and I was, I suppose, I was kind of falling a little bit out of love with the city. So I thought, well, maybe I'll consider being a property guardian. And the first space that I was taken to visit was just instantly took my breath away. It was the entire floor of an office building on the Strand. So you could see Trafalgar Square diagonally out of the window. So right in the middle of theatre land. And I just there and then I just said I'll take it this this is this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen you know it was bigger than a -a five-a-side football pitch it was huge I think it was the offices of a film company a film production company to begin with I thought you know I'm gonna like put my bed right down that and then I'm gonna put my studio right down this end and spread everything out but bizarrely like over time I kind of started moving all the furniture closer together because I think you become sort of living in a more sort of traditional d- domestic space y- you like having things around you it's like when when things are really really far apart it's quite hard to feel comfortable so bizarrely in this huge space I actually ended up living in a sort of corner of it <laughs> we had the Adelphi theatre next door literally next door to our office building so I used to nick their wifi fi <laughs> <laughs>
0: A lot of people would aspire to live that centrally in London and will never afford to be able
2: to do it. What was it like? It was incredible. And the thing that grated on me, if I had to pick something, was just the sort of relentless shoving down your throat of consumerism, you know, because I'd walk outside my front door and there's just all the stores, all just, you know, it's like, I mean, just the Strand is like Oxford Street, you know, there's just these giant chain stores that are just they're just full of people and and that became really tiring most other people around you i guess are tourists or office workers exactly exactly which which i quite liked. it's one of the things that i love about touring is this sort of slight sort of feeling of being an alien somewhere and i definitely felt like an alien living on the strand And the other thing about the Strand for people who don't know London very well is that it's where all the protests
0: go through, right? So they're going to Trafalgar Square and up to the Mall. And I've had this thing, actually, where if I'm presenting radio shows at the weekend, you know, one weekend I'll be in town and it's a gay pride parade walking past, and then the next weekend it'll be a Band the Bomb parade. People don't realise how many protests there are until you see all of them. And I guess you had a
2: front row seat. I did. So, So... Um, The space I was living in had these giant floor-to-ceiling windows, and it was like this looking glass out onto the Strand, which, as as you've described, is this sort of artery through central London down to Trafalgar Square, which is the beating heart of protest in the UK. And the period that I was living there, which was between June 2016 and April 2017, was... A crazy time for politics you know like obviously the referendum had just happened Trump had got into office and every weekend there was just this energy ramping up and you know depending what week it was there'd be Black Lives Matter there'd be free Tommy Robinson it was the start of all the Extinction Rebellion stuff there was the school strikes and so I'd see these marches coming past my window and I just go down and join them on a Saturday morning I mean, I've always been interested in protests. Like, I went on the anti-Iraq war protest when I was a student, and that had a bit of big effect on me. Also in the fact that it felt like it didn't really achieve what it was meant to achieve. But nevertheless, there was something about that feeling of being part of this, this huge swell of, of human energy. I was kind of seeking an alternative narrative to what was going on in the world, to the sort of mainstream media. And I found that in going to protests, not to shout, not to sing, but to listen. A really good example of that was in February of 2017, there was a solidarity sleep out for child refugees. So this was on Whitehall, just outside the gates of number 10. And it was all the volunteers that had been working out in Calais. And they set up a camp and it was the night before Lord Dubb's amendment was, was taken into, into Parliament. It was a place where a lot of the rescue workers that had been living out in Calais that year, they came back and they were just sharing the stories and talking about the projects that the migrants or refugees had been involved in and actually sharing positive stories. And I think that's really important in the context of something like the, the refugee crisis because positive stories don't sell newspapers. But positive stories are really important for us to see the humanity in something. On the 70th anniversary of the NHS there was a huge procession through Central London and what really struck me about that protest was how different the demographic was. It was a lot of older people. It was a lot of people in their sixties and their seventies. These were people who remembered the time before the National Health Service. There was even people in their eighties, you know, in wheelchairs. I guess this was coming into the time where, where there was talk of the NHS being on the table as part of a, a UK-American trade deal. You could really feel the very genuine fear from older people that they would be left without the care that they needed, and from disabled people as well.
0: And I know you've tried to kind of find interesting stories to write about here, stories that perhaps other people aren't talking about. But actually, protesting is kind of trendy now, isn't it? Partly because of Greta Thunberg, basically.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Greta is someone who has empowered a whole generation of um, younger people to, t- to-, to take an interest in their future. And I think... Um, Have you seen her talk? I- I've actually met her. Have you? <laughs> yeah. Well, how did that happen? So I didn't meet her in London. I was in Stockholm in January with my girlfriend taking some time out. I saw she was trending on Twitter one day and it was her 17th birthday. I wonder what Greta's doing on her birthday. And I said, oh, it's a Friday. I wonder if she's doing future Fridays, which is the hashtag that's spawned from her, from her school protests. Okay. So we took a walk to the town hall. There was only about 15 people, and right in the middle, there she was. That's fascinating because, you know, when you see her in the mainstream news media, it's
0: when she's commanding the attention of half a million people and the Pope. Yeah. The idea that she's out there on a rainy Friday with 14 other people standing outside a town hall like every other protester in the world is quite interesting, isn't it?
2: It was, you know, and they're, and I think um, the the other young people that she protests with are they her friends, and they're obviously not as well known as her, but I think they've been... Um, her they've been her peers and her allies since since she first started doing her her protests and um it she has an incredible aura around her i mean it's it's a bit like meeting anyone who is super famous you know like if you i've never met i never got to meet bowie or i've never i've never met mick jagger but i can imagine there's there's a certain energy that that permeates the air around these type these types of figures and with her it is just it's she glows she really really does and she's got these incredible eyes they're piercing and um, she was there and I did you start with happy birthday I did I wish that I said (laughs) I said I just want to wish you happy birthday and 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 you know thank you for sounding the alarm did you go to any protests where the atmosphere wasn't friendly I went to a protest in November of 2017 a protest which I had seen advertised on Facebook and the, the name of the Facebook group was Let's All Go and Throw Bottles of Piss at Nazis. And I saw this and I just thought... I mean, you know what to expect. You know what to expect. So <laughs> there's a mission statement there. Exactly. And this was around the time that it seemed like it was a, almost a weekly occurrence for milkshakes to be thrown at various sort of alt-right figures one week, Tommy Robinson and I just thought, is that how you deal with fascism? I don't know. I'm going go so go to gonna go, along. I'm gonna go and check it Make out. You're going to go along. I'm going to go and check it out. Make sure
0: you've drunk plenty of liquid.
2: Yeah. What was it like? Well, it was it was bizarre. I don't go on protest to be part of a mob. I'd, you know, I'd, I'm not really interested in that i'm interested in it i suppose from a more journalistic perspective and in that case i managed to sneak my way into the photographer's pen so it was it was there was a few guard guardian journalists that i recognized and there was some some photographers and there was britain first and they were giving their they were actually curtailed so they weren't allowed to go down whitehall so they got taken down to the embankment and the police sort of bottlenecked them into this area down on Victoria Embankment and I snuck into this photographer's pen and listened to all this racist Islamophobic rubbish on one side there was all the protesters and then to the right of us the EDL came down and Tommy Robinson and they sort of started to join the protest but Britain First didn't want them to join their crew because Britain First is their mission statement is sort of rebranding the alt-right and they wanted to separate themselves. They see themselves from, as more legitimate, yes. Yeah, they wanted to separate themselves from the sort of football hooligan view of the far-right. But what you were saying is that although there's obviously some pretty toxic opinions going
0: on in the air there between the EDL and Britain First and back and forth and you're in the middle, there's also the guys that have gone down there as the kind of anti-Nazi league people. That is also an atmosphere of intolerance, isn't it? It's an
2: atmosphere of, for the right reasons, they think, going down and saying, fuck off, which Absolutely. is also unpleasant. Yeah, exactly. That's democracy. We'd never really engaged with politics with our music before. You know, I think I've always written much more from personal experience. And the last album that the band made was a a very personal record. And I think it was really written from the outside looking in. After we'd finished touring that album, I thought, well, actually, I want to turn the lens the other way and write about the world around me, which just seems to be going through this insane personality crisis slowly the songs started appearing and and really i'd say that they were quite directly attached to protest that i intended we wrote a song called screwdriver and that was directly influenced from the britain first protest There's another song called History Has Its Eyes On You, which I wrote about the Women's March in January 2017. I actually wasn't in London. I'd gone to Iceland to find some isolation and there was no phone signal. And one day I went for a hike up a glacier. And when I was coming up the glacier, my phone kind of lit up and I was getting some signal and I saw that it was the it was a women's March in Washington and in London, and there was all my friends were showing these pictures from the march. And I suddenly had had this real, I guess like FOMO for want of a better word. I kind of felt like, you know, this is wonderful, and I am in this, you know, this sort of cathedral of ice, but that's where change is happening, and that's where I need to be. Some people would say, actually, that's where
0: the real change happens if you can get five million people to tweet a thing. that's more effective than going along to a thing in Trafalgar Square that whole thing seems a bit you know speaker's corner you know it's always always like you know it's what we did 100 years ago now we've got movements you build online build a website you know do your album
2: make a podcast don't leave the house at all I think there's a danger in thinking like that because there is a power there's an undeniable power that comes with standing in Trafalgar Square or in a field with lots of other people who are there for the same reason as you there's a energy which exists in that space which i I think a picture on social media can't really communicate it can carry the message it can broadcast the message but i think in terms of the actual feeling you really need to be in proximity to other people to remind you that these messages are human messages was it from a placard by the way history has its eyes on you history has its eyes on you was was a placard It sounds like it yeah it was well chosen with Princess Leia. Um, <laughs> it's quite something, a famous placard, actually. Something very specific about British protest placards,
0: particularly the Brexit ones, had a sense of humour, didn't they? Which... Uh, it
2: made them more authentic to me. I'm down with this sort of thing. Yeah.
3: Girl in your eyes, I can see a child Waiting for a sign that the slipper fits Maybe one day you will find your name in lights all up the strip Tell your story in a rhyme Baby, in time it'll be a hit And if the haters kill your vibe Just smile and blow a kiss History has its eyes on you History has its eyes on you You've got a
2: song called Hospital Radio. Tell me about that. As a result of my um, uh, spina bifida, I've spent quite a lot of time in hospitals throughout my life, sort of growing up on hospital wards really at various various times. I've spent long stints in there, having had to cancel tours, move albums, all these sorts of things. And um, it was actually a period in between... Our last album coming out in 2016, and making our new record, I had to take three months off to have some surgery. There's still, I think, 180 hostel radio stations, which is literally somewhere in the bowels of a hospital. There's a little studio. But I mean, that's probably more radio stations than there are actual radio stations in the right, theater. right, right, right. <laughs> you know, somehow they've weathered the storms of austerity, and they've, you know, that they still exist. There's, there's, there's lots of these um, hostel radio stations, and they're broadcasting to whoever's listening and you don't really know who it's going to be but they still come around the wards and they take requests how do you listen by the way when you're in a hospital bed to a hospital radio station I've never done it uh, there's usually like a unit there's usually like a television and you can just plug your headphones into it and and just, it's just a channel on the television. it's just a channel and they um, and they yeah like they come around the wards and take requests and they do like quizzes and they do you know they chat about what's on the menu did you ask for mystery jets <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't request any of my own music. Did they know? No, I, 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 like, to, I like to keep my anonymity in hospital. No, um, you could have given them an exclusive there. <laughs> that could have been a big break. a song out to mainstream radio stations we booked a tour of hospitals and we and we performed a song in hospital radio stations um all around the south east of the uk and um it was the best tour we've ever done it was just the most inspiring thing because we would we were going in and um all the staff are volunteers and some of these guys have been working in hostels for 30 40 years and um artists just don't come in no that's brilliant they don't go in what did the population in the hospital make a bit though I mean I'm thinking of you know 85 year olds we got tweets yeah you know we got some tweets and stuff but I mean I think the truth is that probably a lot of people that are tuning into Hostel, hostel Radio are probably older people yeah. who, who aren't um, aren't Mystery Jets fans necessarily well you know like if, if you were in Hostel you'd probably have all your podcasts you'd yeah. have all your videos and things on an iPad and you wouldn't necessarily think to tune into Hostel Radio but a lot of these older people do
0: Now you've been doing some campaigning yourself recently. So you were born with spina bifida. Yeah. And you said before you weren't very political before. I know this isn't politics as such, but you've been campaigning for disabled access in music venues and stuff. Yeah, that's right. Is that borne out by your experiences going to protest? Would you have been doing this? Would you have been talking about that had you not had that experience?
2: No. I mean, I my campaigning for better accessibility in venues and festivals actually started about 10 years ago. So I, um, on an early tour with my band, I I'd ha- I just had some leg surgery. So I had to tour the UK in a wheelchair and I'd, I've always used crutches to walk, but actually experiencing the touring life from the perspective of a wheelchair user just completely changed my view. Accepting that I needed to ask for help for everything, you know, whether it was getting up a flight of stairs into a venue, whether it was loading equipment, whether it was physically getting on stage, I need to help with everything. And I realized that the these spaces, the, w- which should be cultural spaces, just aren't really set up for performers that don't fit the mold, you, you know, the sort of standard mold. And I thought, well, you know, I, I'd, I'd never wanted my disability to dominate people's view on what, on my music on the music that my band makes but I, after that tour i thought well for a young wheelchair user who wants to get into music what examples are there out there you know like when was the last time you saw someone accepting a brit award with a white cane or you know someone in a wheelchair accepting a mobo like it, it, it's just it's not seen in the public eye and i thought well you know i guess i'm up here and i've ended up being on stage and i'm i'm a crutch user so if that can you know if that can um help me open some doors for the next generation of artists to come through who don't fit the mold then you know i think i felt i suppose a calling just to just sort of see what i could do to help really where the education needs to happen is is with the venues and the promoters to recognize that there is a huge audience out there you know there. are I think the stats like one in 10 people in the UK is it identifies as having a disability and those people they want to spend money it's called the purple pound you know like those people are they want to go to gigs they want to go to festivals there's actually financial incentive for the industry to recognize those people and to invite them in you know and music should be for everybody and that's that's really the message that that I try and talk about as much as possible you know Music still is stronger than any antibiotic, any medicine. It's the most powerful thing. It can lift you out of whatever situation you're in. It can empower you in whatever's going on in your life. And we need to make music accessible for everybody.
0: Blaine Harrison of the band Mystery Jets, their album A Billion Heartbeats, is out on April the 4th. If you'd like to suggest a future guest, you would like to hear me interview on this show, you're allowed to put yourself forward as well. Uh, visit modernmanwith click feedback. We can't respond to every email we get, but we do read and consider them all. If you can afford to support us financially, please do. Now more than ever with the ad market slumping, it may soon be the case that for a little while, our only revenue source to make this show will be your donations. We don't have a big media brand or a broadcaster behind us. It is just me and Matt putting out this once a month for you. We have no agenda apart from bringing you stuff we think you'll enjoy. If you think that's valuable and you can afford to support us at the moment, click Beer Money on our website and chuck us the price of a pint of beer once a month or however often you can afford. And massive thanks to our latest Beer Money donors. That is Brent in Omaha, Joe in Prague, Irene in Kent, James in D'Ado, Richard, Jamie and Amy. Thank you, man fans. Uh, Right, Alex Fox answers your sex questions next after this. right forget about love in the time of cholera it's time for sex in the time of coronavirus with alex fox
1: there may or may not be some collars depending on what you're into uh
0: tell us something fun give us some escapism what's going on in sex world
1: well i have actually set up a little hashtag Lix's little helping hands because i thought everybody needed a bit of positivity around this time so uh uh if you see
0: helping hands in porn is a very specific niche isn't it (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'm not being that You're not offering that. No, I'm I'm not offering to put my digits on anyone's widgets. Um, No, this is just something I'm running on my social media accounts, particularly on Instagram, giving away things like giant plush willies and sex toys and vibrators and links to interesting podcasts. And I just think that like willies moods are better when they're up mm. so so I'm trying to imbue some positivity into the world Ollie. Um, and if people are bored at home they can also tune in and see me on E4's new series of The Sex Clinic where I'm chatting about things like how to have sex comfortably if you're someone that suffers from Crohn's disease pegging and uh, new masturbatory techniques um, I do have a bit of a love-hate relationship with that show I've got to admit I'm really grateful to be on it I think it's brilliant that it uh, encourages people to talk more openly about things like STI testing and and sexual tastes and and be honest and frank about those things in a non-stigmatized shameless manner but
0: can I guess what your gripe is
1: well there's two gripes I could be wrong there's two gripes
0: I'm gonna guess that one of your problems might be necessarily because it's a tv format it all gets edited and so you don't say very much When there's so much to say.
1: Oh, now you've given me a third gripe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what are the other two? Well,
1: one of the issues is that the people who are happy and indeed enthusiastic about being on TV are often television types. So they're quite dramatic. Mm. And a lot of the people that we we had uh, visit the clinic, although they were wonderful and I'm really grateful for them taking part... When they're doing things like um, having genital warts frozen off or having um, being tested for syphilis, for example, they made a really big deal about those things and uh, perhaps gave the impression that they were more painful or more scary or, or just more of an extreme thing to go through than they actually are
0: also it's the embarrassing bodies problem isn't it like the kind of person who wants to be on the telly having their genital warts frozen off has made a decision to have their cock on telly which is a really useful public service but also they're a certain type of person
1: there's also an issue with because it's TV, they want to create a sense of tension and, and trepidation and add some excitement. I think they've played this down a little bit in this season, which I'm, I'm, I'm glad of and I'm happy to see. But I know in the first season, um, a lot of people rightly pointed out that the brilliant practitioners were being asked to pause before they delivered people's STI results. So they're going, we tested you. For chlamydia.
0: <laughs> and your results were... Will Young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's take your questions. If you have one to send in, visit the website and click on feedback. This is from Andy M, who says, Alex, I'm a gay man who recently left a long-term relationship, and I'm getting to grips with the dating scene. Uh, there's a lot of information about prep, and I'm on a waiting list for a trial but I'm aware you can import it. Now, PrEP is a drug... Well, I thought for people who had HIV, but is it for people to prevent getting it as well?
1: So PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's something that you take if you do not have HIV, but the kind of sex that you're having might put you at risk of contracting it. Um, It does contain a lot of the same compounds that someone who was HIV positive would take to manage their condition. Um, But whereas most folks with HIV take a pill that has three key ingredients, if you will, PrEP only has two of these. But it's it's for protection. It's a form of protection. But
0: that could make it sound like it's something you'd use in lieu of safe sex. And I, I'm sure I mean I've heard anecdotally that is what people are doing, but it's not what they should be doing, is it? You should be wearing a condom too, right?
1: Ideally, yes. You'd be protecting yourself in every way possible and wearing a condom, because PrEP can't protect you from other sexually transmitted infections, and it's also not a contraceptive, so it won't it doesn't offer any protection against things like unplanned pregnancy. That said, it's important that we are realistic about the ways that people do have sex mm. and also offer them every possible protection. Um, but this debate about whether giving somebody PrEP and uh, and allowing them to protect themselves from HIV will encourage riskier, uh, so-called irresponsible behaviour uh, elsewhere in the sexual landscape has really affected the story of PrEP and the situation now.
0: Well, I mean, that debate aside anyway, Andy's not talking here about going cruising, is he? He's talking about the dating scene as as he says it. And the rest of his question is, whilst I'm not planning on being unsafe, uh, protecting oneself seems a sensible approach, but I'm having to wait. I wanted to know, is it safe to import PrEP? How can you be sure that the drugs you get are real? And are there any drawbacks to taking them?
1: Okay. um, Well, given that we know that PrEP, it's been proven to be a badass, awesome drug that offers a huge amount of protection against contracting HIV, you would hope that that was available on the NHS, right? But there's a long story here that explains why it hasn't been until very lately. In fact, the, the rules have changed in very, very recent times, just in the last month or so. Um, to get the real lowdown on this, I spoke to a guy called Will at prepster.info, who are a team of, as they put it, educators and agitators who tell people all about PrEP, give them proper knowledge, and also campaign for full access to it. So PrEP first came uh, into the world around 2012, when in the USA, the FDA there approved it uh, as a protective mechanism. Against HIV. And understandably, people in the UK, folks in England, wanted to know why they couldn't get their mitts and their bits on this amazing medication that can really change and save lives. Um, but clinicians and policymakers here in the UK said, right, we need some more evidence. Uh, we want to um, do our own trials and investigations here uh, just to make sure that this is going to go as planned. And a bit like you, the raised ollie the idea that you know maybe people using prep might have unsafe sex in other ways you know is that going to cause knock-on issues it, it Is are the benefits that prep brings also going to come along with problems um mm. so in 2013 they ran a trial called proud um, it was only in about 13 clinics in england most of them in london it initially involved people being split into two groups to compare the way that they acted but the ones who were given prep earlier, it was so effective that it was actually deemed unethical to continue the trial that way and not provide PrEP to to Group 2. The problem with giving medicine to everybody that needs it when it's preventative like that um, at the time, the patent was held by, get this, Ollie, a medical company called Gilead, which, if you're uh, aware of the work of Margaret Atwood, is um, quite a foreboding name. They owned the patent on this drug. Um, there was only one form of, of PrEP at that time, and it was extremely costly. So there ended up being a, a series of, of court cases uh, of uh, Public Health England and, and NHS uh, basically working out who was going to pay for this. Should it be local authorities? Should it be the NHS? Long, long story. Lots of campaigning from um, primarily LGBTQ groups, but lots of HIV activists. But eventually, uh, Public Health England actually came up with a cle- a, quite a clever solution where they said to at the NHS, look, we do need to... To roll this out. But why don't we do it as a second type of trial? Because under international laws, if you're running a research trial, you're allowed to use a cheaper generic version of a drug if it's available, which it was in this case, rather than the patented one. So this allowed them to circumvent the patent. Uh, and that led to the launch of a second trial, which is still running, which is what our listener is referring to, called the IMPACT trial. There are 5,000 places left on that impact trial. That would be usually your first port of call. Try and get one of those if there are places available in a location near to you um however all of that has changed quite recently because health secretary matt hancock has um announced that 16 million pounds is about to be released to cover the clinic related costs to now get prep to everybody who needs it on a non-trial basis
0: okay so this question then is a little bit old because it sounds like andy is going to be able to get his hands on prep But for those who are looking abroad at the stuff that you can import, what do you know about that?
1: That is still actually going to be very, very relevant because whilst it's great that these funds have been given, it's going to take some of the clinics who haven't been included in the trial so far, it's going to take them a while to get all this stuff up and running. So if you can't get on the current trial, buying online can actually be a very good legitimate way of getting that medicine, provided that you know the place you're sourcing it from is legit and this is where Prepster really come into their own what they do is they do secret sales so they buy and test Prep from all sorts of um, of outlets uh, all over the internet, they import it from various different countries um, last year they did independent lab tests on 14 supplies of Prep um, from the 6 main sellers that they recommend and found absolutely no evidence of fake fake Prep, so if you go to their, at the site that they work with, which is IWantPrepNow.co.uk, then you can get prep shipped in from abroad or there's a there's a number of places that you you can get it from online or they also recommend shops in london where you can go and buy it there are some schemes as well that there are details of on the website where if you're on a low income or if you're under 25 you might be able to access free or low cost supplies of this there's all sorts of options but if you go through prepster and i want prep Uk, you know that the meds that you're getting are going to be the meds that you need
0: so when he says are there any drawbacks Not in terms of the pills themselves, but are there any drawbacks in terms of side effects that we haven't discussed?
1: Well, there is going to be a side effect on your wallet. Um, A a month's supply of PrEP, depending on what type you choose, Uh, there's now two main ones. The original one was called Truvada. There's now a, a newer, new generation one called Descovy, which has arguably slightly fewer side effects. Depending on which one you opt for, Every month, you're looking to shell out between 19 and about £59 pounds, uh, if you're paying for it. In terms of the physical side effects, they're actually a lot lower now than they used to be. Only about 1% of people find that the side effects of PrEP are so bad that it discourages them from taking it.
0: Presumably, wherever your sexuality, if you're very promiscuous, this is something you should be thinking about.
1: It's not just promiscuity, uh, it's the type of sex you're having. We know that um, some types of of, uh, anal sex are are, are more high risk, for example, Um, but there is also a risk with vaginal sex. uh, If your partner perhaps comes from uh, an area of the world where there's a very high incidence of HIV, there's all sorts of factors Mm. to be considered. If you are a vagina owner, the way you take PrEP might be slightly different uh, and the guidelines that you're given will depend on Where you are in the world, there are two ways of taking PrEP. You can either take it daily on a long term basis to protect yourself all the time, or if you want to reduce your costs so you don't have to take it as often, and if you're somebody who just doesn't like to take that amount of of medication, you can do what's called event based dosing. So if you know that you're going to have sex on a certain day, um, then you'll take PrEP a certain number of hours or days beforehand a double dose and then take two single doses afterwards in, a ta- in in a set time frame
0: okay and that stock you can keep at home in your in your bathroom cupboard until the moment comes where you think ah oh, this weekend
1: exactly uh, it does rely on people sticking to their guns in, in terms of the sex they have decided that they're going to have. There is sometimes some concern with event-based dosing that you might take your double dose, go to your party or go and meet your fuck buddy or whatever, have a really good session uh, and then while you're in the mood decide to have another session later on that maybe wasn't planned and think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be fine, this, this is all good. Um, it, it, you need to keep an eye on your timings there. So, if you're someone who thinks you might get carried away with lust, long term dosing rather than event based dosing might be better for you. Uh, And again, it's not
0: Harry Potter's hidden cloak. (laughs) Don't keep piling on the adventures.
1: No, exactly. Uh, Be careful with what you're doing with your magic wand.
0: This might feel just, I I feel like I'm propagating some fake news on my own podcast here, but I I have seen rumors online that I haven't bothered clicking, but I've seen the the clickbait headline saying that PrEP might potentially be a treatment for coronavirus, because it's all about the immune system, isn't it? Is there anything in that?
1: I'm actually really glad you've asked that question. Whenever there is an epidemic of something viral, as in coronavirus, it is... Really normal standard behaviour that medical experts will check whether any of the antiviral medication that we already have will work against that because it's already um, in it's already being manufactured. We know that we can get it out to people. We know that it's it's safe. And yes, some HIV medications are being considered. However. Absolutely no evidence has yet been found that anything connected to PrEP or HIV management has any effect on coronavirus. Please do not buy HIV or Pr- meds or PrEP online in an attempt to protect yourself from coronavirus or treat coronavirus not only will it not work or we don't we pretty much sure it won't work um, but you could actually do some damage to your body you, you could affect your immune system in the future and also importantly you will be hoarding medications that people with HIV or or, or with lifestyles that mean that they might be exposed to HIV really need that so don't be a selfish see you next Tuesday
0: Equally, don't stock up on Lemsip cold and flu for an orgy.
1: No, I don't think that's what chemsex is, Ollie. (laughs) Lemsex. We've invented a new new genre. (laughs)
0: Um, And on that bombshell, Alex, I look forward to speaking to you again next month. If people want to follow you in other viral ways, how can they do that?
1: Please do follow me and try and win some free plush willies or sex toys. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at AlexFox Fox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X. And I'll pop up those links uh, to Prepster and I Want Prep Now and some other useful info as well. So that if you want to go and read this over in your own time and absorb it properly, then you can do that.
0: And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man. But there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Julia Bazzolo in Washington D.C. who says, "Ollie, I discovered your show last summer through Answer Me This, and I've consumed much more than I should have before finally donating you some beer money. Thank you, Julia." Uh, very regrettable, she says, because your podcast is solid in every way, and I had been convinced of it since episode one. You guys cover such a broad range of topics that there's a reason to reference it in almost any conversation. <laughs> there is very little for me to criticise in that email, Julia. Um, I now pronounce you ambassador for Washington, D.C. Congratulations you are on the map. Until next time our theme music is by Django Django I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. Stay safe, keep well and we will be back with the dads on May the 1st.